Studios Peace in a Pod. My name is Indigo Trigghauger, and I'm a communicator at the Peace Research Institute, Oslo. My job here is to help researchers convey their work. Usually that means talking to the media, politicians, other stakeholders, and colleagues. With this podcast, that means talking to you. Today marks 20 years since September 11th, 2001. That was the day Al-Qaeda operatives attacked the World Trade Center, the Pentagon, and attempted to attack the U.S. Capitol, but ultimately crashed in Pennsylvania. There were almost 3,000 deaths, and many thousands were injured. There are still more who have suffered since then from long-term health issues, both mental and physical. Today, I talked to four researchers about their reflections on the 20th anniversary of this event, and what the effects have been on global politics, security, and war. First, I speak to Christian Bag Harpbeacon about one of the largest legacies of 9-11, the War on Terror. Christian is a research professor at Prio. He's an expert on Afghanistan, and his research focuses on war-related migration and social networks, regional insecurity, and peacebuilding and peacemaking. He's a former Prio director and currently leads the Prio Middle East Center. Thanks for joining me on the podcast again, Christian, especially considering that it has only been a few weeks since our last conversation, so I appreciate the time that you're taking. Thank you. It's always nice to be with you. <laughs> um, so we talked last time about Afghanistan and um, some of the topics that we covered there, and especially about the Taliban and, and the history there, we will probably touch on again today. But the podcast that we are recording today, which is coming out tomorrow, uh, is about the 20th anniversary of September 11th. And I say I specify anniversary because this is very much looking back. And I think now that it has been 20 years, we do have kind of the benefit of hindsight and, and a little more context. And so in your segment, we're going to talk about the war on terror. Um, but I'm going to just start with the immediate effects. So what were the immediate effects, do you think, of 9-11 on U.S. foreign policy? Just to give us some context for the rest of this conversation. Well, of course, the terror attacks on 9-11 were a deep shock to uh, to U.S. society in its totality. But the new administration under George W. Bush then also saw the opportunity in the crisis. And there was a group there of uh, old neoconservatives who were eager to make up for... Uh, what they saw as a failure to carry through things in Iraq in the early 1990s under the old Bush. Um, and they, they grasped this opportunity. And while Afghanistan was the immediate target, it also immediately after that led to the planning of the intervention in Iraq. So these were, these were people who wanted to restore U.S. supremacy in the world, wanted to do that with uh, military power, had great faith in uh, military power, uh, and really saw this as an opportunity to, to do exactly that. So in some ways it sounds like it was a, a, a continuation, but maybe even a ramping up of what the U.S. had already been doing in the previous couple of decades. It was definitely a ramping up, and I think at that particular stage in history it would have been... Uh, virtually unimaginable for the U.S. to go to large-scale military interventions in the absence of the justification that 9-11, so to say, provided for that. Uh, it was also a period where, uh, where the U.S. really uh, really defined the game. So uh, we know now in hindsight that whereas the Allies uh, in Europe and elsewhere at the time seemed... Uh, very compliant, very agreeable, uh, supportive of uh, the very responses that the U.S. defined. There was very little consultation, and the skepticism was very, very deep. So, you know, uh, in circles in Europe, for example, when discussing how to relate to the U.S. Uh, aggression, uh, concepts such as Bush management were used. So how can we manage <laughs> the Bush administration cleverly uh, huh. so that this doesn't hit back or hit back and weaken weaken the military alliance that we've had with the US for the whole period since the second world war while at the same time trying to prevent the worst imaginable from happening because the skepticism towards the uh, the relatively or the very aggressive uh, foreign policy that was emerging in Washington also was very deep this is reminding me as well of uh, 
the ways that different countries and governments have had to, in a way, handle Trump in the last in the last few years. Um, thankfully, not anymore. But I, I feel like there's been similar reports. Absolutely, I'm sure <laughs> the concept of Trump management was equally equally common. And of course, if you look at NATO, for example, and discussions within NATO over the past years, the years under the Trump administration, it's been very much about keeping the U.S. on board, um, preventing NATO and the alliance from falling apart, while at the same time preventing uh, the worst imaginable policies, uh, which wasn't always successful, you know. The Iran nuclear deal, for example, was pretty much uh, parked in a corner under Trump's presidency, uh, and so forth. Mm. All right, so that was the immediate effects of 9-11 on U.S. foreign policy, and also the the kind of ripple effects for the international community. But immediately after 9-11, there was this declaration of, okay, it's going to be the war on terror. Mm. And this is something that we have heard about constantly in the last two decades. Um, It has become a a very, I would say, overused phrase um, and and used to justify, rightly or not, various actions, and not just by the U.S., but, but by many different countries. And I just want to ask you quite plainly, was this war on terror successful? I mean, it, is it over? Uh, are we entering some kind of new age? Was it successful? I think it's a mixed, it's a mixed scorecard, and it's always very difficult to, um, to say precisely what, what the alternative would have been and what the consequences of the alternative would have been. But by and large, I think the war on terror was a disaster. You know, if you think back in 2001, you could jump on a bus in Morocco and you could safely travel all the way to India through the whole, through whole of North Africa and the Middle East without really being worried about your security. Today, there is hardly any country on that stretch where you would, without security precautions, imagine traveling on public transport. That's how much the world has changed in those 20 years. Mm. And that, is, that really saddens me. And of course, me or you wanting to travel that stretch is not a big concern, but there are actual people living in these societies whose security and life standard have deteriorated significantly. Now, that's not all the fault of the West and the US and the war on terror. Of course, the terror networks, the clever entrepreneurs within the terror networks who have both schemed prior to 2001 and uh, effectively used some of the responses uh, to 2001 to, uh, to, to expand their influence, uh, have, have a lot of the blame too. So it's, uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's both action and response, of course. But by and large, I think the war on terror has made the world into a less uh, safe place. The immediate reaction in Afghanistan, uh, clearly there was a need for a reaction. Uh, this was a huge terror attack. Uh, it was executed by Al-Qaeda stationed in Afghanistan. But there were other possible responses. A lot of people would say this was absolutely necessary. We had to intervene in Afghanistan. Well, the counterfactual is nobody would have imagined a large-scale military intervention in Afghanistan if this had happened today in a different context. Uh, so that that wouldn't have happened. But a police action, a more limited military action to uh, to penalize the Al Qaeda leadership and those who had had schemed 9/11 would definitely have uh, been in place. Then, of course, Iraq came out of the blue uh, less than one day, one and a half year later. The intervention in uh, in Iraq came about, and based on what we now know and had very good reason to believe already then was absolutely false intelligence. Uh, mm. Faked evidence presented to the world society as if these were were facts. Nobody or most people didn't really believe it then. Uh, and the war on the war on terror and the the intervention in Iraq has really no logical connection other than that uh, the war on terror was used to justify the intervention in Iraq. There are a lot of things to say about Saddam Hussein, Hussein's regime, but he wasn't he wasn't a supporter of global terrorism, and he wasn't possessing the weapons of mass destruction that uh, the U.S. leadership claimed at the time that he was possessing. So that was and that was a disaster, and it really contributed to many of the worst imaginable outcomes of the war on terror in terms of giving terror networks a new ground on which to fight and a new justification for their fight and contributing to what Joe Biden 
recently called the metastasizing of uh, global terror. All right. So all that said, what is the state of global terror networks today? Well, the jury is out. And even the best experts we have internationally on global terror really have very, very different takes on that question. But there are a few things we can say with relatively relative certainty. One is uh, global terror networks have been largely unable, particularly in the recent few years, to carry out complex terror attacks in the West. Much of that may have to do with surveillance and control mechanisms that have been put in place. Uh, But uh, in much of the rest of the world, there is much more terror than there has ever been. There's been some decline in, in recent years, but the number of people killed by terror in places like Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, even now as far down in Africa as Mozambique, is just devastating. Mm. So so that's one thing. And the terror networks have adapted to a new context. And I think the ways in which they have adapted to a large extent is to go more, to go much more local. So linking up with various local resistance organizations and groups and tapping into their grievances. Mm -hmm. So today, terror isn't as much a global transnational uh, phenomena aiming at overthrowing the the global order. It's much more aiming at addressing local problems, local grievances. Uh, And that's what we see throughout. And that may make you think that terror is less of a problem today. Uh, I don't think that is the case because I think this to a large extent from the main inspirators of terror globally, this is a tactical adaptation for the time being. Uh, And then the consequences of this terror for human beings across the globe is just many, many times what it was 20 years ago. Right. And in the next part, uh, in the next conversation where I'm going to talk to a couple other researchers, we are going to talk about surveillance and um, the ways in which surveillance and and the use of data um, and intelligence has evolved over the last 20 years. So um, we'll save that for, for their conversation. But I would actually like you to just quickly maybe define what terrorism actually is. And I realized that we're kind of in the middle of this conversation, but it kind of occurred to me because when you said these are often local attacks, Mm -hmm. and I think that from our, yes, Western and very privileged view, um, people just think, oh, there's just a lot of violence uh, in an area or in a country. What What actually defines a terrorist attack, at least from from your research perspective? versus um, there simply being civil unrest or uh, a lack of governance and so on? Yeah, that's, that's a key question. And uh, I try to avoid using the term terrorism because it conflates two things. It conflates ideology, purpose, political aims with tactics of executing violence. And those are two different dimensions. And I always think it is helpful to keep the two apart. So terror, to me, is a military tactic in which you are executing attacks uh, aiming at civilian targets. So it sort of violates the discrimination principle in military ethics whereby civilians are to be spared for the consequences of violence. And it does so uh, with the intent of creating fear. Hmm. So that's the terror part, hmm. <laughs> in a sense. That, to me, is terror as a military tactic. Now, terror is used by a lot of different groups. Um, in Over the past 20 years, much of the attention has been to terror used by is- radical Islamic groups, particularly transnationally oriented ones. But, let's face it, one of the consequences of the war on terror in Afghanistan has been that the Taliban, which has never been an internationally oriented group and isn't an internationally oriented group today, their focus is on Afghanistan, they have become a terror group. They didn't execute terror prior to 2001. They started the first, you know, the first experiments with suicide missions 
was in 2003, and in within a few years they were executing suicide missions and placing road bombs and all the rest of it on virtually an industrial scale. So that's that's an example of a local locally oriented group that has adopted terror. Also, of course, cooperated with and uh, enabled by hosting um, internationally oriented terror groups, their use of terror. But then, of course, increasingly we also see right-wing groups uh, turning to terror. So I think we, 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 ought to, we ought to do away with the whole concept of terrorism because it's simply, it's simply analytically unhelpful and it confuses two different dimensions, namely the, the tactics used, the means used, and the ends pursued. Hmm. Since you brought up the Taliban again, I would love to hear you discuss this a little bit, even though we have talked about it in the previous episode, which I'm going to link so that people can get even more context. But... Um, one thing we didn't really talk about was the potential for Afghanistan becoming a home base for terror attacks again. So in the previous episode, we talked we talked more about the acute situation. And yes, the Taliban has has control of Afghanistan now. Um, but what is the potential for, for terror coming from that region and not necessarily from the Taliban itself? That potential is, is definitely there. Uh... The Taliban, when they were in power in the period 96 to 2001, did host Al-Qaeda networks. Uh, in fact, the Al-Qaeda network was there before the Taliban takeover in 1996. They were virtually inheriting these, uh, these guests from the regime that they replaced when they took Kabul in 1996. But they were quickly befriended by the, by the Al-Qaeda leadership. It was very strategic about building ties with the Taliban. Uh, so although the Taliban did do quite a few few things to try to prevent Al-Qaeda from executing international terror attacks, they were unsuccessful at that, ultimately. And uh, Al-Qaeda also solidified its ties with Taliban through a number of uh, softer techniques, such as intermarriage, uh, religious oaths of allegiance to the leadership. So today, for example, we, we know for sure that the the current leader of Al-Qaeda, Dr. Al-Sawahiri, he has, he has pleaded allegiance to the leader, Mullah Habaytullah, of, uh, of the Taliban. And those ties matter, and they are difficult to rupture. So when the U.S. and Taliban sat down in Dua for a year and a half, from late 2018 to early 2020, and negotiated the deal, uh, preparing the ground for the withdrawal of international forces from Afghanistan, they went back and forth on the formulations as to what commitment a Taliban would make with regards to supporting international terrorism. And the furthest they got is that the Taliban committed to ensure that Afghanistan doesn't become, that Afghan soil isn't used for staging security threats towards NATO, not towards the US and its allies. The US wanted something much more concrete. They wanted Al-Qaeda specifically identified out there. They want the guarantee that they would be expelled, not housed whatsoever. That did not get into the agreement simply because the Taliban were hesitant. And of course, on the other hand, the Taliban is also under pressure from Al-Qaeda, who, who felt that this was a real threat to their possible future presence in Afghanistan. So I think there are no guarantees. Uh, but clearly, this is something that the US and Taliban is, uh, is talking about. And just a few days after the Taliban took Kabul on 15th of August, we had uh, National Security Agency uh, Chief William Burns traveling to Kabul and meeting with uh, Mullah Bradar, then the in effect uh, key leader of the Taliban in Kabul, to presumably discuss exactly these matters. Hmm. All right, I'm going to pose a counterfactual here. Do you think that the world would be a more peaceful place today? if the response to 9-11 uh, had not been this declaration of the war on terror, but something else? And, and what, would that, so the, what could that something else have, have been? I definitely think the world would have been a more peaceful place if the war on terror had been fought out, fought with, uh, different, with different means. Uh, I think the large-scale military effort was a fundamental mistake. It did have consequences for so many people that it prepared the ground for support of the very organizations that were executing terror in the first place. 
uh, in some ways the uh, war on terror has contributed to normalizing the use of terror. Mm. So whereas in 2001 terror was a military tactic used only by a few um, a few exclusive networks today we see terror being used in many many conflicts around the world with devastating conflict with devastating consequences so that is what i refer to as the normalization of of, of terror now what would an alternative consequence have been i don't think i don't think uh, an entirely peaceful response is imaginable in the, in this instance i think a targeted uh, military or police action if you want uh, against al-qaeda who were responsible for the attacks mm. would have been in place uh, and i believe that the uh, intelligence needed to pull that through was was also in place um taking out the taliban regime uh, I understand the logic of that. I think partly that had to do with revenge, partly it had to do with the concern that if they were kept in the offices in Kabul, they would re-engage in supporting international terror networks. I think there would have been a different way. I think in the first place you could have engaged in a much more thorough dialogue with the Taliban than what was done at the time. Now, if that hadn't worked out after the Taliban actually lost power they were eager to engage and to be reintegrated into the um, political um, architecture in in Afghanistan and they were not allowed to they were basically excluded and even if the key Taliban leaders wouldn't have been allowed to lead a new political party called the Taliban there was a larger there was a larger landscape uh, political landscape in in Afghanistan of people that, for some reason or for some reason or another, had sympathized more with the Taliban than with the alternatives, and there should have been ways to uh, represent that voice in the governance structure, and they weren't. They were basically excluded, and in many ways driven to uh, commit to the military fight because that really was the only alternative to uh, to raise their voices. Hmm. As I started this conversation with, we kind of have the benefit now of, of hindsight. Um, 20 years is, well, from a historical perspective, maybe not not so much, but it, but it is a, a good amount of time. And I'm wondering, what new reflections do you have, just in closing, um, anything that you would like to add here? Well, I think at sort of a more abstract level, thinking about it now with with in a 20 years perspective i think the the war on terror have had many of the consequences that the more skeptical allies of the united states tried to avoid back in 2001 it has led to a massive erosion of global norms the large-scale use of uh, unacceptable interrogation techniques uh, torture the building down of uh, protection of civil liberties in many societies also in the west have had devastating consequences the willingness to use violence uh, organized violence even with large civilian casualties and enormous consequences for the civilian infrastructure and the general well-being in populations uh, that live far away from us has also eroded those very same international norms and this has had consequences for international co collaboration uh, writ large and I think that is very very serious and there is no way to put that genie back in the bottle so when we now look at the ways in which support for international cooperation international institutions and international norms are eroding the war on terror has been one key factor contributing to that erosion. And that really saddens me uh, because that's something we'll have to live with the consequences of. In the second part, I talk with three researchers about the surveillance, data, and legal aspects of 9-11 and its aftermath. Mariela Kaufmann is an associate professor at the Department of Criminology and Sociology of Law, University of Oslo. She's worked at the intersection of technology and security for over a decade. 
Within this line of research, she has published and edited broadly and received multiple awards. Her main interest lies with digital surveillance practices and how people engage with these practices from within surveillance systems. Kirsten Bektora Sandvik is a PRIO research professor and a professor at the University of Oslo Faculty of Law. She teaches sociology of law, legal anthropology, legal technology, and artificial intelligence and robot regulations. Kristen currently leads the project Do No Harm, Ethical Humanitarian Innovation. Bruno Oliveira Martins is a senior researcher at PRIO. His research interests lie on the intersection between technological developments, security practices, and societal change. He's led and participated in projects on drone technology, airspace defense, digital politics, and COVID in the Middle East, North Africa region. Thanks for joining the podcast today, the three of you. I'm really excited to have this uh, conversation with three amazing experts on data surveillance, security, uh, international law. Um, I'm going to start with a question to you, Kristin. Let's just jump right in. What kind of legal infrastructure developed in the wake of 9-11? So um, 9-11 has had an enormous impact on uh, international law, but also domestic law in in the U.S., Um, So I think we can safely say that the war on terror as a legal paradigm has been not gained credibility in international law, but has has features that continue to sort of plague us today and undermine the rule of law internationally. So on September 14, 2001, George Bush signed the Authorization for Use of Military Force, AUMF, uh, into law. Um, so the AUMF imposed no temporal or geographical limits and the U.S. military and the CIA were authorized to wage war to capture, detain, interrogate and kill suspected enemies. Um, George Bush, uh, for a long time, kept insisting that the Geneva Conventions were not binding on the U.S. military. That interpretation was was later tempered through Supreme Court judgments. Um but it, contain, it sort of persisted as a cornerstone uh, on, on the, the war of, in the War of Terror. Um, so a couple of months after 9-11, U.S. Special Forces and CIA were operating underground in Afghanistan. You, you remember this coalition of 29 states plus NATO. Uh, a year later, this was extended to the War on Terror in Iraq in the Coalition of the Willing. And, and then this sort of kept expanding. So... so the enemy combatants of 9-11 were not the same a couple of years later. Uh, In in a separate track from the military, the CIA operated this rendition detention interrogation program. And this is where you might remember these infamous torture memos. So the CIA got really worried about the legality of the methods they were using and the possibility of future prosecutions. Um, So lawyers in the Justice Department, uh, they reinterpreted federal law to characterize an authorized method such as waterboarding as not as as torture. And, and, you know, these early torture practices and the way they were given a legal basis is part of the reason that we're still waiting for for definitive 9-11 trials, because a lot of the evidence has been so tainted. So eventually we had Supreme Court uh, cases that repudiated some core elements of of this presidential order, saying that the Geneva Conventions applied, that people in military detention couldn't be held in communicado forever. And then eventually this this cracked the doors open for for Guantanamo lawyers uh, to sign on as as counsel. but, you know, the, the Bush administration kept going. So in 2006, they, they had this Military Commissions Act, MCA, which was kind of a legislative entrenchment of the right to torture. Um, and, and this sort of, these, these acts, the, the legacy of this hasn't really been, uh, been undone. So Obama ended the torture program, but didn't prosecute those responsible for, for you know, this extended violation of international law. And and as we remember, this all migrated to Abu Ghraib as well. We do remember these terrible photos of, of abuse of detainees. And and as we know, there is a strong legacy of, of uh, Guantanamo, which has operated for now 20 years. Um, uh, most of the 700-something detainees have been set free. Today, we have only 39 left, I believe, the Biden administration has released one person, uh, mainly due to advanced age, back to Pakistan. 
Um, but this, this, you know, this war on terror it remains a legal disaster as well. On the side of this, we, we had the U.S. Patriot Act passed in 2001 to improve the abilities of the U.S. law enforcement to detect and deter terrorism. And that law um, had extended provisions of surveillance for tapping domestic and international phones, for example, and, and this, this ability to sort of engage uh, everywhere. I believe my, my colleagues will get back to this later on. Um, so, so just finally, a, a brief note um, on on law and, and of going to court. Um, the U.S. is, you know, known as a country where people go to court a lot. Um, this week, uh, the terrorist trials after the 2015 attack in Paris opened in France, and this is going to be the biggest trial in French history. Uh, we know that how much the 22nd of July trial meant. To, to Norway uh, as a country and to the Norwegian population. Similarly, uh, the Spaniards conducted a very thorough trial after the Madrid bombing attacks. Uh, we still haven't had a definitive 9-11 trial. Um, strangely enough, you know, this very week, after 20 years, the pre-trial hearings of, uh, of the main sort of suspect, uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, opened again in Guantanamo Bay. Um, and this has been going on for years and years and years, and, and there is really no sign uh, sign of the end. Uh, it's going to be very difficult to, to sort of... He, he's, on, he's, he's in this pre-trial hearings with, together with five people, I think. Um, and there's been a long sort of pandemic pause. Um, but, but just to conclude these trials... Uh, there's really no end in sight here. Thanks. Thank you so much, Kristen. That was a great um, introduction to, to some of the topics that we're going to be covering here today. Before we move on, but also I invite you, Bruno and Mariah, to comment as well. I just want to ask you, what does it mean for a society, a country, um, I guess psychologically, really, to not have a trial, to have that kind of closure? I mean, there have been other types of, I guess you could say, closure um, for the American people but as you mentioned, the U.S. is very law-oriented. Um, so can you just briefly reflect on, on what that means that, yeah, it, there hasn't been that type of closure yet? No, I, I could perhaps say that um, one, of the, one of the, perhaps one of the consequences of, of 9-11, which was uh, a terrorist attack with a magnitude that had not been seen in Western countries before, was the understanding uh, of terrorism as something that is kind of beyond the paradigm of a normal criminal offense. And this is something that, that um, you know, that has had implications in, in many uh, legal systems, uh, you know, uh, throughout uh, you know, not only in the U.S. but also in 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 Europe, all EU countries have adopted, you know, new um, uh, terrorism uh, frameworks following uh, 9/11. Um, and there is indeed this um, this uh, this you know sometimes the, the problem with with the proof has has been happening in, in the U.S. But also the the fact that the, the the legal framework for 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 terrorism is different than than the criminal one, so I don't know, um, you know, in terms of in terms of closure, I think that this uh, obviously has implications, but it also has some some procedural implications that you know in in term will have implications on you know on the notion of of closure and the dynamics of closure. Mm. Um, Marayla or Kirsten, do you want to add anything? No, I mean, I should just say that, that you know, and, and this is this is you know, been fascinating to me and in, in, in preparing for this podcast would be all the things we forget, right? So, so College Sheikh Mohammed has also, in 2007, confessed to not only being responsible for the 7th, September 11 attacks, but also for the Al-Qaeda bombings in Bali and Kenya, and the shoe bomber plot in 2001. Um, I don't know if you remember this. It was an airliner involving this man called Richard Ride, and, and then also the murder of this American journalist, Daniel Pearl, in Pakistan. 
and and Muhammad's nephew uh, is the one who detonated the car bomb in the World Trade Center attack into 1993. So, so we also, you know, we sort of forget so easily that this wasn't the first terror attack against the towers either. Um, so, so the, you know, this all makes it complex, right, to single out 9-11 as, as one separate event. Yeah, I, I agree with uh, with Kristin here. To single it out is one thing. And another thing is that obviously there's different forms of closure, right? Like there is one, one type of closure that we get through trials. There's one type of closure that we would get through kind of uh, understanding what certain measures, political measures have done to society and actually reflecting about them together with society. This is also a form of closure. So I think the <clears throat> the various types of closure are, you know, they're still going on today. And even, I might even like, I personally, as a <laughs> as one of those people who kind of continues, uh, continues debates and understands ambiguities and so on, I'm also having a, a problem with this, idea of closure i don't know if it ever can be final i don't know if we ever will reach that point but there's definitely different thresholds we can call it or a rites of passage that need to be transited um, in order to move on with society today hmm. but if, if i can just uh, I'll, I'll, I'll just a short remark i mean I, I think it's i mean the interesting thing which is clearly coming out of 9-11 is you know they're constructing this this legal system that's set up to fail it's you know it's all the secrecy which makes it almost impossible to do your job as a defense lawyer you have all the tainted evidence so a lot of the effort is going towards concealing the torture that you've undertaken and and then you've embarked on these security practices and and you know armed drones i mean you sort of created a whole new world of trying to govern and and, and live there and and so so you know closure as as marelle said is is in, in a way impossible, right? Because it's it's just become its own sort of moving, evolving creature. Hmm. So we're gonna move on now to um, technology, and Bruno, I, I'll just pose the question to you: What are the logics, techniques, and technologies of counterterrorism, um, current Western counterterrorism, and how have they evolved in the last twenty years? And I think this is a good segue because we now we've kind of talked about the legal side of things. So let's let's go over to the technology that has evolved at quite a rapid rate. Yeah, I think that uh, uh, it's important to understand, um, you know, continuities, obviously, uh, but also you know some acceleration of processes and and some new processes that that began uh, in this period as a response to 9/11 obviously you know uh, historical processes are always uh, are always complex and multifaceted so kind of it's it's uh, always difficult to say that one thing immediately leads to the other but there are certainly some logics that uh, came directly out of one particular interpretation of of 9/11 that had you know very tangible consequences that happened afterwards. So one of them uh, is it was the the understanding of of terrorism as mostly an external threat. Okay, so this is a consequence of the fact that 9/11 was understood as an external attack on the U.S. Uh, and this is something that had you know very uh, concrete consequences in terms of the securitization of movements particularly movement across border um but it also had implications in terms of neglect of internal internal forms of terrorism particularly uh, far right uh, inspired and until until very recently uh, you know regular threat reports you know both in Europe and the US completely neglected um the you know the the whole dimension of of far right inspired terrorism because that narrative and that logic was so was so prevalent and of course this had also some you know the materialization of this logic happened through you know new border surveillance technologies new big data infrastructures etc a second logic was that was it came out of the realization that 9/11 was an, a failure of intelligence okay 
And so the logic that came out of this uh, interpretation was that preemption became the dominant uh, risk management uh, strategy. And I think Manila will talk a bit, a bit more about that. But I would just like to mention that kind of out of this logic of, of preemption as risk management strategy, we had a number of, of different techniques, you know, the logic of collect it all when it comes to, to data, okay? So we should, you know, given that we didn't have enough information before 9-11, now we need to make sure that we have all the information, okay? And this led to some, you know, a movement from, you know, decisions based on human intelligence to a, a growing reliance on signal intelligence, okay? So metadata analysis, pattern of life analysis, etc. And this have, you know, <clears throat> this was mediated, you know, the, the implementation of this logic and these techniques came out of... <clears throat> new data mining, mining technologies, cloud extraction tools, etc. Another one was the understanding, you know, uh, rightly or wrongly, as 9-11 as an attack on our freedoms, okay? And so uh, this, this and, and of course, I think that this is a highly incomplete interpretation of what happened. But based on this logic, you saw a, a, a logic of the interpretation of terrorism as a rejection of the of, of the Western way of life, and this, of course, had very serious implications and very problematic ones about you know the securitization of otherness, you know, however this otherness is manifested through religion, ethnicity, country, country of of origin, etc. Um, another thing that I would like to mention was that uh, out of the fact that 9-11 was carried out by a group of individuals that despite being based in a particular country was not, were not acting on behalf of that country, led to a growing individualization of insecurity. So the threat suddenly does not come from states, but rather from individuals and groups. And so out of this logic, there were a number of, of techniques that started to become you know, uh, more um, standard that had to do with the elimination of key suspects, their affiliates, their lookalikes, etc. So always this idea that, you know, if if you if you uh, address the individ the the individual nature of, you know, the cause of insecurity, you will you will get increased security. And of course here, you know, the most logical and, and the kind of, and, and the most, uh, not the most logical, but the kind of the, the most uh, obvious manifestation of this was the proliferation of targeted killings through armed drones. So again, the, the technological evolution enabled the materialization of this logic. <clears throat> and then um, the final thing that I would perhaps would like to highlight is that uh, from a U.S. perspective, 9-11 seemed to have happened out of nowhere and took place in the U.S. in a Sunday, in, in a sunny morning, you know, like in a day like everyone else. So like 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 every other. So it, it was almost like suddenly the, the logic became that the, the threat of terrorism is persistent and it can happen anywhere at any time. And this has led to the erasure of, of the boundaries of the battlefield, you know, this understanding of the world as a battlefield. So you need to fight terrorism wherever it may pose a threat. And then this was obviously materialized, you know, as, as Christine uh, mentioned already in issues like, you know, dark sites across the globe, indefinite detention, extraordinary renditions to third countries, torture happening in third countries, mass surveillance everywhere, um, but also this idea that you would perform precisely, you know, those targeted killings in, you know, wherever in the world it, there was an understanding of an emergence of a threat, and be it uh, Somalia, Yemen, Pakistan, Afghanistan, etc. So there was a clear expansion of, of, of the battlefield. So I think that some of these some of these dynamics are very long-lasting and are st uh, still observable today. And uh, I think that 
you know we can we can talk more about that but this is basically what i would like to to lay out in terms of you know how particular interpretations of what happened led to you know uh, the establishment of of a number of logics that then were materialized through a number of of techniques that was great bruno um your mind astounds me <laughs> you make so many amazing connections i have so much to unpack right now um Marayla, i think i want to bring it over to you now because bruno just talked a lot about data and i was thinking about patterns which is one of your um, areas of expertise and i i found a survey from 2011 um, that was done by the um, national emergency management association and I'm, I'm sure there must be updated surveys as well but Immediately after 9-11, Americans were very, very willing to give up their personal freedoms. Um, and it did drop a bit, but even in 2011, uh, so, so a decade afterward, um, the majority, 55%, were still willing to give up personal freedoms, which I found very interesting. But as well, the majority were afraid of there being another attack. And so, Bruno, I like that you pointed out that kind of one of the key elements, I guess, and, and one of the most effective things about 9-11 was that it was an ordinary day. Uh, it was a Tuesday. It was a beautiful day. Like, this is the narrative that, that people have for themselves as well, personal narratives, right? Everyone has kind of their story. Um, so bringing it from from the kind of overarching top level of, of government agencies down to the individual level, Marayla, what have these developments done for, for individuals? And the ways that ind individuals are surveyed and also how we go about our lives. I mean, this must've had huge, huge impacts. Yes. I mean, you're mentioning something that um, I actually want to quote Julian Sanchez for who's a, who was a research or is a research fellow at Cato. And he says, basically, you know, it's this classic, um, mm, this classic balancing of civil liberties and security that we're being exposed to. And this idea that this this needs a balance, but for some reason, uh, we're thinking that the more our liberties are invaded, the more secure we are. And uh, there is this there's this trend that this is also probably why a lot of Americans were very you know willing to um, to give up their their civil liberties um, due to this imaginary I want to call it for now due to this political narrative of um, of enhancing security and avoiding such trauma uh, once again. Right. So so it's in a sense, it's emotionally, effectively, it's an understandable response. But there's very little um, there's very little in-depth uh, um, uh, discussion about these projects. And well, uh, when it comes to how we have been, uh, you know, what has happened to surveillance and the surveillance of individuals uh, since 9-11, I think, uh, of course, what Bruno mentions this this turn towards the the preemption, the risk paradigm, and the, the this this supposed fail of the intelligence. You know, can you actually even find these unknown unknowns and so on? You know, this is <clears throat> something that really led, in the short answer, to internet surveillance that was outrageous twenty years ago. Not to even speak ten years ago, but has by now become quite normalized. Um, and how do we get there? And and I would say that the U.S. and, and not just its government, uh, but also also private actors in the U.S. had actually rather a big role in how we got there. Um, we know, of course, that there is where the direct reactions to individuals, according to 9/11, with the establishing or with the with the explosion of no-fly lists. I mean, no-fly lists existed beforehand. They're done by this U.S. terrorist screening center. So, so they existed before, but they grew substantially. And um, now, like, we're talking about various different lists. Um, we're also talking about terrorist watch lists that are much bigger than these classic no-fly lists. And you should know that these no-fly lists that originally was really just a list with names are by now information that is integrated into uh, screening uh, procedures that are done at airports and so on. So these these lists are now algorithmically um, kind of screened. So these lists were originally um, like expanded by Bush, but they're extended throughout all administrations, including Biden's today. So this is this is something that uh, keeps keeps on expanding. There has been we know that too. There has been an explosion of committees and national bodies to counter terrorism after. 9-11, um, it's, it's amazing. One can't almost not kind of uh, count them on, on two hands. 
And then, of course, there has been the establishing of this Patriot Act that was signed by Bush, but it also ran under Obama. And it has this, um, you know, it has it's it's uh, the idea to unite and strengthen America by providing appropriate tools required to intercept and obstruct terrorism. Now, that is one nice uh, uh, <laughs> acronym for you. So all of this is together, uh, Patriot. And. This is quite a complex piece of legislature um, that is, uh, this is constantly expanded. It has lots of paragraphs, but the main, the main targets it has is, of course, surveillance and then interagency co uh, communication on counterterrorism efforts and penal law. So, so all of this was strengthened with the, substantially with the Patriot Act. And we can now then also see that while all of this has happened, um, and 9-11 was a motor, we can say that too, there were actually several developments in parallel that uh, led to this much broader and much more normalized surveillance apparatus that we have today. And here I just want to go into details. What has, what has actually happened here? And I think we have witnessed in the past 20 years a professionalization or, or the rise of digital profiling. What used to be this profiling idea of kind of looking into certain traits of people on paper and trying to kind of you know, use classic intelligence to assemble all this, um, has now led to the rise of all sorts of associative techniques. And this is not just a new way of trying to get to know terrorists or whoever for that matter, uh, but it is actually a way in which data are collected. It's a way in which data are stored. It's a way in which data actually come to exist together. And and what, what do I mean by, by association? The point is that, um, these kind of the classic rise of the if-then rule has happened. So if something is true, then it is executed. So we're looking for specific parameters that we think certain data sets, you know, can, can reflect. And then we're kind of defining these and these and these parameters of a person are becoming the profile of a dangerous uh, person. So, so the aim of such algorithms is um, then to connect different sets of information and to make patterns from them and then to show us these patterns and say, bling, bling, now we found that person that is really dangerous. So whether these patterns are really meaningful or, or actionable, you know, whether they really lead us into something, that depends on so many aspects. Uh, I could expand on them later, but not least, um, it, it depends on these rules of association that we people create. And um, yeah, so that means that, that now we're in the middle of discussing algorithmic cultures. Other things that has happened uh, in the past 10 years in parallel that led us to this, you know, as I said, 9-11 was a motor, but of course, we had a constant extension of databases, right? Databases are exploding all over the planet. We have the rise of Google. We have a parallel development of, of, of profiling for profit in the private sector, where all this expertise comes from on how we are actually writing uh, sensible algorithms. And, and today, by today, this form of identifying patterns in big and small data sets, not to forget, has really become the gist of information science. If you want to do big money today, you're going into this, this profiling business because we're doing it for all sorts of reasons by today. And so we shouldn't forget that, yes, there was 9-11. Yes, there was an, a practical establishment of all of these committees, these ideas, these acts, and so on, the, the actual way in which the private sector was brought on board of the surveillance um, that the Patriot Act actually kind of also um, sets out to do is, is kind of is happening in uh, together with the rise of, of, of other forms of surveillance for profit and, and profiling techniques. So I guess we can land on at least, you know, one type of conclusion here, and that is that terrorism and, and the politics answering terrorism in together with with the rise of of certain private sector models um we're actually quite successful in instigating this surveillance regime and i would think that this surveillance regime we can discuss as a specific type of fear or insecurity um that you know that actually just continues happening so much for closure mm. uh, it looks like kristen would like to comment on some of the things you've said. Kristen, go ahead. I, I thank you, Bruno and Marila. Um So I, I just want to make a kind of point about, you know, where we're at today. 
Um, so, so in terms of this individualization of, of enemies and, and this idea of the enemy within, I, I, I think it's also quite interesting in terms of, of you know, the algorithmic tracing of, of, of patterns, for example. So if, for those of you who listened to President Biden's speech on, on vaccination, you know, what he says, he said last night is that we've been patient, but our patience is wearing thin and your refusal to vaccinate has cost us all. So please, you know, do the right thing. Uh, you know, my his message to Americans who haven't vaccinated is what's more is there to wait for? What more do you need to see? So, so, so there is, and, and with the technology we have today, clearly uh, singling out people who haven't been vaccinated is, is possible. Uh, but it's also used quite systematically to to produce enemies in a way that's quite far from the war on terror, but which is part of the same of, of this part of the same paradigm. Mm-hmm. Um, the second thing I, I just wanted to emphasize is that the nine eleven terrorist attacks were perpetrated by Al Qaeda as a crime against humanity. So, so these are attacks deliberately targeting civilians and civilian infrastructure. And, and you know, 9-11 resulted in enormous and large-scale human suffering. Um, and, and I think, you know, 20 years after to this day, we really need to emphasize this. And also to understand that we need to continue to see and recognize this suffering, to be able to see and recognize the mm-hmm. suffering of victims and survivors in the post 9-11 terrorist attack. So just so we don't end up trivializing uh, that this actually was a crime against humanity. That's correct, Christine. But I, I would also say what we're, you know, what our role as, as researchers is also to interrogate what are the right tools here to really acknowledge the suffering. And, uh, and I guess the, you know, the point in which we are now discussing all the different kind of both, you know, penal law, but also kind of, uh, you know, the rise of technologies and so on, are basically putting, you know, you know, putting a question mark on is this really, is this really helping us to recognize what has happened and to really effectively, uh, you know, um, work with this, um, not to even speak of, you know, preventing something like this, because, um, yeah. So just to mention that too. Hmm. Thank you both for those reflections. I want to ask you a follow-up question, Marayla, which is you kind of, you mentioned this with the Patriot Act, that there's a sense of personal responsibility that is put on citizens to kind of, I don't know if this is the right word really, but be interpolated perhaps in into the surveillance apparatus. And I liked that Kristen also brought up... Um, the the pandemic just briefly because to me these are kind of two sides of the same coin that that it's being put on people to to make personal decisions that will affect others and of course i mean that's an integral part of being part of a democratic society but it strikes me that in the case of surveillance um this can obviously really be misused what kind of narratives have been uh, built up over the last two two decades when it comes to surveillance and this could be in the u.s or, or more generally as well yeah, I mean, obviously, one big uh, one big narrative is that the more data you have, the more you can find, you know, where we've already mentioned the big data paradigm, this idea that if we just get enough information, we can actually find results. And that puts everyone uh, into the position to uh, to share. Um, this is the same narrative that governs, by the way, as I said, private actors too, you know, the more information you share about what you buy and so on, the better we can profile you and give you an offer that makes sense for you, right? So it's kind of, they're, they're, I don't say they're the same, same narrative, but they're pretty parallel because it has to do with this idea of if if we only had our hands on enough information, we could uh, potentially dig something out, find that, that uh, you know, famous needle in the haystack. It's interesting if you actually speak to um, these, these are the public narratives that are being built and then being part of this kind of dugnat of this exercise of, of sharing this information, I guess it's an implicit one. You know, it's a little bit of call for, you know, it's, it at least has become suspicious, I would say, if you have something to hide. It's suspicious if you're becoming the person that says, I am actually quite interested in um, 
not speaking to this profiling paradigm. And I think privacy is not really bringing us very far here. Yes, we can talk about privacy and yes, I want my private life to happen and so on. But I think what, what I mean is that the, the, the people who really kind of sometimes refuse to be part of this, um, this way of sharing information do this because they say, no, we have understood that these profiling activities have an impact on us as society. They change us as society. They put us into a place where we suddenly start acting and according and relating to these kind of profiles. And that's why people say, I have no interest in sharing much more data, or I have interest in sharing data that is maybe not irrelevant, that you're not relevant to, to those who, who, who set up the profiles online. So I, I, I have to say, I have an, I have an understanding for that. Um, so that's why I think, I think this kind of idea of privacy and data protection can only bring us so long, especially since data protection specifically is very easily infringed upon and, and, um, and yeah, used uh, or yeah, infringed upon when it comes to security issues. You know, this is a classic that whenever, you know, it's about security or terrorism, we're allowed to just look anywhere, which mm. I think is also a balance, a balance we need to strike. I'm not, uh, I'm, yeah. I'm willing to see that too. Okay. Um, Bruno, you, you had a comment. No, yes. Uh, just just to follow up on this, there is also this this logic of you know from from the individual perspective, there is this dominant logic in, in you know that is present in, for so many people that say, well, I there is I have nothing to fear because I don't really have anything anything to hide. You know, uh, as if as if uh, intrusion and uh, you know permanent and persistent violation of privacy was something that was only affecting the ones that had something to hide. And it's, it's pretty obvious that that is not the case. And so that, that, that narrative, I also think that doesn't, doesn't hold uh, true uh, very well. And also this, this idea that, you know, if, if you don't have anything to, to hide, you will be fine and you will not be targeted. And, this is not true from you know a state security perspective if you want to put it like that it's certainly also not true from a more kind of a commercial surveillance uh, perspective either and when these two things you know really become intertwined as they are today then uh, you know the idea that if i have if i have nothing to hide i have nothing to fear uh, it's it just doesn't apply anymore so interesting. Um, I would love to give you all one last chance to to add any final thoughts. Um, uh, you don't have to if you if you feel you said your piece. Um, but Marila, maybe you want to go first. Is there is there anything that you would say in closing? Well, I mean, I think that was so weird, huh? We're speaking twenty twenty years uh, past this. And I still would say I'm surprised how much at the beginning of this we still are. Um, I don't want to sound depressing, but I think it's, um, you know, when you go back 10 years, of course, for the for the 10 years anniversary or, or you know, um, the, you know, the, the, the daily the event of or the, the 9-11 10 years later kind of people have uh, been already taking stock and, and saying certain things are dangerous developments here and we really need to start asking questions whether these are useful and helpful and heal help healing wounds and so on or whether they're actually just inflicting more wounds and interestingly enough um 10 years later a decade later we still kind of are uh, smack in the middle of the the same discussions and not to mention um at least i can talk on on on, on behalf of my field uh, but i guess law and in general technology have become so much more complex so I think the, the, the incentive to really take a closer look and to understand what are these technologies doing? What is this law doing to society? How have we started to accustom ourselves to this? How have we become uh, actants, like our self-active actants in this whole, whole setting here? You know, these are, these are still very relevant questions we need to answer. And obviously they're, they're expanding way beyond the US, <laughs> that's clear. Thanks, Marila. Yeah, Bruno, closing. Yeah, thoughts. I could uh, maybe just uh, add two things. So one would be um, that the, the 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 consequences of nine eleven are still felt today, uh, not only by the societies but also by the victims, 
and these victims, there, there are victims of 9-11 um, that, you know, became victims 20 years ago and others that became victims 20 hours ago. So I think that the, you know, the, the, the reverberations of, of 9-11 uh, exist uh, up until today in different parts of the world. And I think that we, we, we need to acknowledge that. The, thing, the, the, uh, the other one is that uh, our societies uh, were effectively transformed over the last 20 years. This, uh, I would say, this, these transformations um, happened together with the consequences of 9-11, uh, not necessarily just because of 9-11, but you know, as part of a, a political and societal transformation where security issues became more and more prevalent. Uh, and this is something that is obviously manifested on, on, on surveillance. But as Marala has mentioned time and again, this surveillance today is not... When we talk about surveillance today, we don't, we don't talk just about state surveillance. We talk about you know, a number of different actors participating in this you know, general surveillance with different motivations and, and you know, different logics, you know, commercial, security, etc. And so um, I think that we need to recognize the fundamental importance of the terrorist attacks of 9-11 20 years ago for the societies that we have today, but many of, of, of the key determinants of what constitutes you know, our daily lives today happened together and enmeshed with the securitization of different processes that happened afterwards. So it's, there, there is a kind of a, a causal link, but it's, it's something that branches out in, in many different ways. Mm, thank you. Kristen, I'll give you the final word. No, I mean, in, in many ways, international law uh, has proved partly resilient, uh, resilient uh, at least. Um, but but I, I think it's it's correct, uh, the observation that came from Marayla, that it has become infinitely complex. So what it means to, to sort of save the integrity of international law is just a different question today than it was 10 or 20 years ago. Um, I, I, I think it's... Um, you know, it's a little bit puzzling in, in terms of, of, of what has happened this summer, where the withdrawal of, of military forces after, for, from Afghanistan after 20 years is being portrayed by national and international media as a tragedy. You know, this is the end of a war. It's partly the end of, of civilian suffering. And, and, and the question is, if, if we continue to sort of center 9-11 as a frame, are we then able to understand, for example, what the withdrawal from Afghanistan can mean? Um, yes, thank you. Thank you all so much. Um, it's been great to hear those reflections. I uh, will also link to some further reading in the description of the podcast. Um, I really appreciate your thoughts and I hope we can continue this conversation later. Thanks for making Prio's Peace in a Pod. This podcast is a production of the Peace Research Institute Oslo, PRIO, located in Norway. For more information, visit prio.org. Editing, recording, and hosting by me, Indigo Trikauger. Music by Martha Minimal.